Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It may feel like Americans are deeply divided about just about everything right now, but our national parks are something the majority of us can agree on. Thinking about Yellowstone, Yosemite, the Grand Canyon fills us with wonder, awe, and pride. The United States has more than 600 million acres of public land, and that goes well beyond the national park system. The history of our public lands and the policy that shapes them goes back to the founding of the nation. John Leshy is an emeritus professor of University of California Hastings College of Law, and he was a solicitor for the U.S. Department of Interior from 1993 through 2001. He has written a comprehensive history of American public land. It's called Our Common Ground, and he's in the studio with me now. John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. And when I say comprehensive history, I mean <laughs> comprehensive history. I mean, this this starts before the Constitution. What inspired you to do such a comprehensive look at this entire history? It's a good question, and I, I have worked on public lands issues for more than a half century. Uh, most of my professional life, actually, has been devoted to teaching and writing and, and activism regarding the public lands. And I realized that th- there had been no comprehensive history. You know, there are good histories of the park system and good histories of the forest system and pieces and places, but nobody had ever really written uh, a comprehensive history of all the federal public lands. And so I thought, well, there's really a, a, a niche here that ought to be filled. Uh, and uh, uh, I was motivated in part because it's a great success story. I mean, it is a story of how our political system has really worked the way it's supposed to work because poll after poll show uh, that um, America's public lands are very popular everywhere among Republicans and Democrats all over the country. I mean, people want more and more protected federal lands. And so it is a success story, and goodness knows we need those kinds of stories. And <laughs> and it's, a, it's really a bipartisan history. That's something that struck me again and again, not even uh, looking necessarily at the executive leadership and what party they belong to. But over and over again, you talked about committees in Congress that were chaired by people of different parties that got really extraordinary things done. Absolutely. And that happened again and again and throughout history. I mean, the core of the story I talk about really starts in the 1890s, because that's when Congress and the leg- and the executive branch got very serious about holding on to lands and, and managing them, most for protection. Uh, But during that time from the 1890s on, it didn't depend on who was president, Republican or Democrat, or who controlled which House of Congress. This kept happening. And uh, that is the idea of protecting more and more lands in in national ownership. Uh, So it was a thoroughly bipartisan uh, enterprise and still is, frankly. All right. Let, let's talk about what it means when we say public lands, because as I said, it goes well beyond our national parks and our national forests. What do you mean when you say public land? I mean the lands that the United States government owns title to uh, that are managed primarily through four agencies, the Park Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Forest Service, and the Bureau of Land Management. And they manage uh, well over 600 million acres of land, as, as you mentioned. Uh, most of, I don't talk about the Defense Department lands. That's a tiny fraction. Or lands managed by the post office and that sort of thing. But those four agencies manage the overwhelming 
bulk of, of federal lands. And they all manage them. Each of them manages the lands pretty much for the same thing. And that's another part of the story that's kind of under underreported, which is, you know, there's not that much difference between the objectives of the Forest Service and the objectives of the Park Service, let's say. Uh, recreation, conservation, science, education is the dominant use of most of the lands, regardless of which agency is managing them. And you do a beautiful job telling the story of how that mission evolved over time. Before we dive into what was going on in the 1890s, which was such an incredibly influential period, I I do want to talk about the time before that, because, of course, as this nation was being created, as we were collecting lands in the West, you do acknowledge that all of these lands were taken from Native people. And that continued for decades and decades and decades, well after the United States became the United States, well after we had the footprint that we have. And that's such an important part of the story. Yes. Uh, now, I don't tell the story. Or I don't spend much time in the book on the, on the dispossession. Um, which started, frankly, with Columbus. I mean, when the European invaders came, uh, they pushed the the Native Americans aside and basically took their land. And then when the United States was formed 300 years later, it continued that process on and on. Uh, But it's a different story from the one I tell because that was over pretty much uh, by the Civil War and then in the couple of decades after the Civil War in the rest of the West. But so it's a, a different story. And there are somewhat different villains. I mean, there, there's kind of a, uh, a false narrative out there that the National Park Service came along and threw the Native Americans off to establish national parks. That's not the sequence. The sequence is the miners and the industrialists and the settlers came and pushed the, the Native Americans to one side got title to their land. And then years later, the United States said, well, we have all this land. Let's start holding on to some of it and saving it. So that's why I don't talk in, in much detail about the, the Native American dispossession because it's a, it's a different story. Now, I do talk toward the end of the book uh, about the modern era and how a very influential, very important uh, development in the modern era since World War II is how Native Americans, their tribes have have really reasserted themselves and and reasserted their sovereignty and want and have been exercising more influence over how these lands are managed. And in some cases, a a handful of cases, have got some lands back, uh, persuaded the Congress basically that their ancestral ties to particular places are important enough that that they ought to really not just have an influence but should actually get title. So that is a modern development that's certainly uh, important. Well, and and just important, so important to acknowledge that as we talk about these lands and, and how they became part of the United States. Also, as the colonists, the settlers moved west, our lands were shaped by political forces during that time. Slavery was a huge shaper of of how our states became states, when they became states, and also influenced public land. Things were kind of a crazy mess with regard to public land before the Civil War. Is that a fair characterization? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, most most Americans have some dim knowledge of the Dred Scott decision, which was kind of the worst decision in U.S. Supreme Court history uh, before the Civil War, which basically where the Supreme Court said uh, African-Americans could never become citizens. They're unworthy, blah, blah, blah. 
But most people don't understand that the Dred Scott decision was in part a public lands decision <laughs> it, because in that decision, the court basically stripped the Congress of constitutional power over public lands because they didn't want Congress to have – the court did not want Congress to have the power to say territories that become states can be free states. Uh, and so that was an important part of the Dred Scott decision. Now. Civil War comes along, <laughs> decides that question. The Dred Scott decision is regarded now as, as the, totally the most discredited decision in Supreme Court, worst decision in Supreme Court history. But before the Civil War, as you correctly point out, the slavery kind of dominated everything, including public land policy. So um, kind of at the same time as the Civil War, but then also after the Civil War, we have the Gold Rush and we have the Homesteaders Act. And suddenly this is a time where the federal government has to wake up and say, oh, we need to do something about our public lands, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it began uh, – there were intimations of this in the Civil War and then it really – that movement to hold on to and protect public lands really flowered starting about 1890. But – one of the important little incidents in, in public land history is in the middle of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln signed a law which protected a piece of public lands forever for the first time in history, and that was Yosemite, Yosemite Valley. That was legislated protection by Congress in 1864. Now, it wasn't the first national park because Congress gave Yosemite to the state of California under strict federal orders to preserve it forever. Uh, and then in 1905, California ceded it back to the U.S. So Yellowstone was the first national park because it came a few years later. But Yosemite actually deserves credit uh, for um, being the first protected area of public lands. And, and some historians have said, I think correctly, that this was kind of an expiation of sins. It was the idea of uh, healing that came toward the end of the Civil War, the idea that we ought to protect some of these inspirational places of public lands as a way to help you know, reunite the, the country. Right. Well, and there was a, a shift with the Civil War, with the end of the Civil War, even just in how in how we felt about the United States, but also how we talked about the United States, there was a shift from the United States are to the United States is because we are one nation. Um, there was this period after the Civil War, though, again, <laughs> where where things were pretty crazy. One of the historians you quote actually called that the time after the Civil War a huge barbecue. And this was the Gilded Age, a low point for morality in our nation's history? Sure. And it was, you know, dominated by uh, very large corporations, industrial corporations, mining companies, railroad companies, and that sort of thing. Income inequality was very, very wide, uh, kind of comparable to what it is now. And so, yes, it was a period of, of plunder, basically. Uh, the government got out of the way and, and let these forces just operate. And also a big wake-up call. And a big wake-up call because gradually in the 1870s, 1880s, there was this movement that began that what this is going too far. We need to kind of rein these forces in. And part of that was we need to hold on to some of these lands to preserve them for future generations, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the beginning of the this big movement that started in the 1890s. And, and a moment where some people started saying – these lands are so beautiful, so inspiring, so remarkable. That's why we need to save them. So that that was really 
the beginning of the movement that created how we feel about our national parks. And I am setting you up with a lot to talk about, and we need to take a short break here. So we'll talk more about that and that incredible period of change that started in the 1890s in just a moment. With me today is John Leshy. He is the author of Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands. It's a comprehensive history of our public lands, dating back to before the Constitution was written. Much more coming up in just a moment. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This hour, I am talking with John Leshy. He is the author of Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands. He is also emeritus professor of University of California Hastings College of Law. He was a solicitor for the U.S. Department of Interior from 1993 through 2001. So he's been involved in creating policy for our public lands. But he has created this comprehensive history that goes back to before the founding of the United States to talk about our relationship with our public lands and how that relationship has evolved over time. There's a whole lot of policy in in this book as well. And I want to talk about what you refer to as the great transition beginning in 1890. And before we, we really dive into that, Tell me a little bit about this point in time, because in some ways it, we had reached a low point where our public lands really were at risk. Our native species were a terrible risk. Tell me a little bit more about what was going on at that time. Well, a lot of forces had come, were coming together at then. One was the concern about species. We saw the destruction of the bison, for example. The passenger pigeon, which numbered in the billions, uh, was eventually wiped out shortly after the turn of the 20th century. So you had wildlife concerns. You had concerns about just plunder in California in particular. For example, the mining, which involved extensive use of mercury, had polluted huge amounts of water. There was concern about watersheds and the West in that point, and most people don't understand, was the most urban region in the country. Most of the people lived in cities, and they looked at this mountainous terrain around them, which produced the water supplies they depended upon, and went, we can't let this stuff be plundered or you know, our, our civilization here is going to be at risk. And so that movement to preserve the upper reaches of watersheds was very powerful, became very powerful, and resulted starting in 1891 in the the creation of what became the National Forest System uh, and setting aside uh, uh, tens of millions of acres uh, in the in the West. So a lot of these forces came were, came together around that time and really produced this very powerful political movement. Well, and I think that it, it just bears underlining how 
we were taking everything from the land. I mean, we have talked on this program many times about the species that were extirpated from Iowa. We'll be talking about the prairie chicken on Thursday, one of those species that disappeared in the state of Iowa because of overhunting. And being in the Midwest, we know that the vast majority of the trees in the Midwestern United States were clear-cut as this very hungry nation was being built. So this really was this very pivotal moment. So in the 1890s, people were waking up, people were feeling concerned, people wanted to create these forest reserves, and Congress decided to give the president a whole lot of power in this. Tell me about that. Yes. So in 1891, Congress passed a law which basically, very simple, one sentence, authorized the president of the United States to set aside lands that the U.S. owned uh, in what became known as forest reserves. And the idea was, the immediate motivation was this protection of watersheds and protection of water supplies. Uh, And uh, so the president... Republican and Democrat used that power over the next 20 years to set aside more than 150 million acres of land. Um, And Congress uh, not only stood by and let it happen, but actually endorsed it. I mean, this was not something the executive was sort of seizing uh, away from the Congress. This is the power Congress gave them. And then Congress looked and said, fine, you're doing great, you know. Uh, And so that was the creation of the national forest system. Um, And it happened uh, both, as I said, Republicans and Democrats uh, uh, quite quickly. And it was mostly the result of petitions by people in local areas. You know, the citizens of Denver, the chambers of commerce of Denver and Colorado Springs petitioned the government to set aside all of the uplands in Colorado. Uh, The same thing happened in California. Same thing happened in Oregon. So this was not a federal land grab over the opposition of locals. Uh, Quite the opposite. This was the federal government responding to local petitions uh, to make this happen. And you mentioned the forest uh, reserves. At the turn of the century, then we do see a, a president come into power who was very engaged with the public lands. And of course, that's President Teddy Roosevelt. And he did a great deal to shape our public lands, although not as much, I was surprised, not as much to shape the, the national parks as I assumed. But tell me about Teddy Roosevelt and, and that these ideas that he brought to the forefront. Well, he was, you know, an incredibly energetic guy. Uh, he was also had ties in the West. He had been a rancher in, in the Dakotas. Um, and so he understood the West uh, and the West understood him and respected him as a result. Uh, so now he was not alone by any means. Uh, and he gets an enormous amount of credit, but not all the credit. I mean, there was, you know, Grover Cleveland, a Democrat. Uh, who created a lot of the national forest system, Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, uh, as well as Roosevelt. So uh, he was only part of that package, but he was clearly the most preeminent because he just his force of his personality and his uh, uh, and his engagement in the, in this issue. Now he wasn't that interested in the parks, in part because uh, he saw the forest as sort of doing the same thing or protecting the areas. Uh, and also, his son, a chief lieutenant on this stuff, was a guy named Gifford Pinchot. And Pinchot was very heavily invested in the Forest Service. And Pinchot was not that interested in parks or wildlife. Uh, he was much more interested in forest management. And so I think he he sort of steered uh, Theodore Roosevelt away somewhat from, from parks, although there were some parks created while while Roosevelt was president. And there was a law created while Roosevelt was president that has 
been incredibly influential ever since. That was the Antiquities Act of 1906. Tell me about the Antiquities Act. One of my favorite laws. And uh, the champion of that law was an Iowan, a, a fellow named John Lacey, who served in the Congress for about 18 years during this time. An eight-term Republican United States congressman right. from Iowa's 6th Congressional District. Okay. <laughs> uh, Lacey, like many of the people involved in this movement, was a veteran of the Civil War, had fought in the Civil War. And I think that was also an important factor, the idea that they had seen the horror and the destruction and came out of it saying, we need to do something positive about this country and about its future. And I think that was a big motivation of Lacey. So he championed this law called the Antiquities Act, which in some ways was sort of parallel to what Congress had done in 1891 with the Forest Reserves. In the Antiquities Act, Congress gave the president in the United States the power to protect features of historic or scientific interest on public lands and to set them aside and protect them forever. And they were known as national monuments. Now, the reason they were called national monuments is Congress said, uh, you know, we, the Congress, have the power to create national parks, and we, we, that's a monopoly. We, we don't hand that out to anybody. But we'll let the president do something similar, but we'll call them monuments instead of parks. Uh, so, and presidents, both Republican and Democrat, there have been, I think, 21 presidents since the Antiquities Act was passed. 18 of them, nine Republicans, nine Democrats, have used that power to set aside and protect more than 150 million acres of land onshore. Wow. So it's been a very powerful, very influential law. And we often think about the end of a presidential term um, with the, the pardons that tend to happen right at the end of the presidential term. But something else that most of these presidents have done is spend their final days in office setting aside land for protection, protecting national monuments just in those final moments. Absolutely. And it's something in modern times, I think, and I've seen this up close because I was involved in President Clinton's, uh, he created, I think, about 20 national monuments, and I was involved in almost all of those. Uh, presidents these days, it's very hard for presidents to just sign their name on a piece of paper and see things done. Right. Uh, there's usually an enormous amount of process, et cetera, connected with it. But the Antiquities Act is still one of those places where a president can say, I'm going to sign my name on a piece of paper and protect some area area for future generations. So every president, Republican or Democratic, get, kind of gets captured by that. Well, not uh, every Not president. every, but I most. can think of one notable suggestion <laughs> or six, <laughs> exception. We'll talk yeah. about that in, in a little while. But most, I mean, that's, yes. that's a big legacy moment. Yes, absolutely. We are talking about America's public lands this hour. I'm talking with John Leshy. He's the author of Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands. And you mentioned, I mean, we've talked about the Antiquities Act. We've talked about John Lacey being very involved at, at this point um, with trying to protect public lands. John Lacey is also one of those people who shifted the, the focus in a way toward protecting species. And again, this is a time where we saw these species, one species disappearing after another, hunting with no hunting seasons. And uh, John Lacey is uh, one of the people largely responsible for the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which protect, protected migratory birds who were largely being decimated by the fashion industry at that point. So so suddenly there's this this focus on the fact that species are disappearing and they are never coming back. Yes, yeah, that was a very powerful movement after the turn of the century. And Theodore Roosevelt also played a big part in that because he set aside the first national wildlife refuges 
uh, in part to protect species. And, and Roosevelt, of course, was a hunter. And this was also an interesting part of the story because it was actually the hunting community, the sport hunting community that was very powerful and engaged on this issue of protecting habitat. I mean, it took them a while to get there. But once they got there, they became very fierce advocates for protecting habitat. And Lacey and Roosevelt uh, really propelled that movement forward uh, to do that. And it's been quite successful. So I want to talk a little bit about the period of time between the Roosevelt's because uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was also incredibly influential in our public lands. Herbert Hoover fell in between there, another prominent Iowan, and and he was another uh, real proponent for public lands, wasn't he? Absolutely. And and uh, this is also a, a kind of a hidden part of the story. Most people don't realize that Roosevelt, I'm sorry, Hoover, uh, Hoover was a, a, a committed angler. He was a big sport fisherman. And even though he had made a fortune in mining industry all over the world, uh, he, was a, he was quite green. And he exercised executive power. He used the Antiquities Act to protect places like Death Valley, Great Sand Dunes in New Mexico, Black Canyon of the Gunnison in Colorado. He created some big wildlife refuges in Nevada and Oregon, places like that. So her, Hoover really does uh, deserve a, a good deal of credit uh, and doesn't get it usually for, for that kind of activity. Yeah, he doesn't get credit for, for much <laughs> that happened in office when he was yeah. uh, in office. The um, I, You bring up mining, and this is a part of the story throughout. There, even as these lands are being set aside— and protected, the kind of protection, the amount of protection is constantly up for debate in a number of areas. You talked about forest reserves, and there's always been the question of how much harvesting is done on these forest reserves. There's always a question about who has the rights to the minerals below these public lands. There are, you know, so so many ideas about who should benefit. So tell me that this is where the majority of the conflict has arisen over time, from my perspective. Well, that's true. But you have to go kind of uh, resource by resource because the story is somewhat different with either. Mining is a special case. The California gold rush sort of set the tune for all these federal lands are open for mining. And, you know, you just go out there and you don't need permission from anybody. You just go out and do it. Uh, now, uh, eventually, Congress, after the Civil War, passed a law called the 1872 Mining Act, which basically uh, confirmed that system. Amazingly enough, the, the 1872 Mining Law is still on the books. Uh, it's been somewhat modified over the years, but the basic principle that you can go out on on many public lands and just stick a claim in mine without a whole lot of regulation and get it for free. You don't have to pay anybody for it. It's still on the books. It's the one glaring kind of exception to the overall trend, uh, which is very much toward more and more protection. If you look at logging, for example, uh, on national forests, the national forests were always logged, but the amount of logging was quite minimal until right after World War II. And, and when the soldiers came home and there was this huge boom in home building and suburbanization and all that, logging on the national forest shot up uh, to very high levels for the next two or three decades. And then in the 1980s, it, it re was reduced to pretty much the pre-World War II levels where it's remained ever since. Um, so... Uh, so while there's always exploitation uh, for, you know, these sort of industrial purposes, overall, 
the total amount of public lands that's devoted today to mining and intensive logging and that sort of thing is, is a very small percentage. Uh, and it's gone down over the years. And I don't think it's coming back, frankly. Well, uh, we'll save grazing for the next, okay. <laughs> the next segment of the show. I was going to say, there, there <laughs> that's is an a, exception. That's a long that. story. Yes. Um, but I want to talk about FDR and his influence over public lands. Of course, uh, we know that Roosevelt came into office during a very difficult time, uh, financially, a huge economic downturn, and he served through the Great Depression. That shaped his policy in many ways, but so much of his policy benefited our public lands and created this national park system that we know and love today. Tell me about Roosevelt's ideas about public lands. Well, Roosevelt, uh, you know, in in some of his biographies when he was in his 20s and 30s, he would describe himself as a forester uh, because he rehabilitated the Hyde Park uh, land that he had grown up on. Uh, and so he was quite green, too. Uh, he was a Democrat. His cousin Theodore was a Republican, but they they shared a lot of, of And we know traits. those titles shifted <laughs> right. in meaning over time. Right. Uh, and so FDR was quite active. Now, he obviously had the challenge of getting the country out of the Great Depression and fighting World War II and all of that. He had a lot of distractions, but he, he was quite uh, prominent. Uh, his his uh, legacy on public lands is quite pronounced. Well, Parts- and, it, and fascinating that he, he was able to use something that gave the public lands so much value as a tool to put people to work. Yes. Oh, yeah. Civilian Conservation Corps um, and the acquisition of lands, particularly in the middle of the country, for migratory bird refuges, that that uh, was really pushed uh, when Roosevelt was uh, president and uh, created the sort of modern national wildlife refuge system. Uh, he, uh, the first national seashore was established uh, on his watch. So he, he went in, into a lot of different directions but created a, a legacy which uh, – which was really important. He, he wanted that legacy to be deeper. He wanted the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Public Works Administration to be permanent. permanent. Yes. And right. they, and they were not. said no. Although, you know, it's kind of come back in a way. I mean, the, the uh, uh, recent legislation is establishing something like a Civilian Conservation Corps to rehabilitate forests and that sort of thing. So that idea hasn't died entirely. Well, and of course, anybody who spends time in national parks or state parks experiences the work that was done for the, during the Roosevelt administration, creating really beautiful structures and, of course, renewing our lands in ways that a lot of us can't see. Although you can see those rows of red pines <laughs> that you know were planted by the CCC over the years. But we will talk much more in just a moment. We need to take another short break. I am talking with John Leshy. He is the author of Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands. It is a thick book, a comprehensive history of our public lands. Some of this history actually predates the U.S. Constitution. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
My guest today is John Leshy. He has written a comprehensive history of American public lands. It's called Our Common Ground. He's an emeritus professor of University of California College of the Law, San Francisco, and he was a solicitor for the U.S. Department of the Interior from 1993 through 2001. And we talked to, we, there's so much to talk about with the history of public lands. I mean, this collection, this book starts before the Constitution was written, but we've made it up up to the end of the Roosevelt, the second FDR's administrations. And um, I, I want to skip ahead a little bit, and I want to talk about President Johnson and the Wilderness Act of 1964, because this was another moment that really transformed our public lands and turned them into what we know and love today. Tell me about the Wilderness Act. Yeah, very pivotal. Um, and the Wilderness Act was um, is the most protective system of federal lands. Uh, on wilderness lands, the lands are in, that are in that system, no road building, no commercial activities like logging or mining, uh, no motorized vehicles. Uh, so it's very strict uh, preservation. Um, and uh, um, interestingly, it was championed by a, a conservative Democrat from uh, Colorado named Wayne Aspinall, a House member. Uh, and Aspinall didn't particularly like wilderness, but the most important thing to him was that Congress be the gatekeeper of this system. Not an acre goes into the wilderness system unless Congress says so. Now, Aspinall totally underestimated the popularity of the idea. And so he looked on as uh, Congress enacted hundred, uh, dozens of laws that put more than 150 million acres into the wilderness system. Um, and the interesting thing politically about Congress being the gatekeeper is that it is very hard to enact a law that deals with a particular area of public lands without the consent or acquiescence of the local representatives in Congress. So Aspinall understood this, and that's why he said we want Congress to be the gatekeeper to give more local control to these lands. What he underestimated was how much local sentiment there would be for strictly protecting lots of public lands. So it's been a very successful system. And it's also created a model for Congress to go on in the modern era to create all kinds of other labels to put on particular areas of public land. So most people who look at a map probably get terribly confused and go, there's national recreation areas and there's national seashores and there's national conservation areas and there's national scenic areas. And what does that all mean? Well, the, the, the answer is all that means these are places that local people have decided they want to protect. And they, they choose somewhat different labels for different circumstances. But the idea of all these is to basically protect the lands and say these aren't going to be industrialized. These are going to be held open for science, for recreation, uh, for conservation purposes. And so that's been a very powerful movement that was kicked off by the Wilderness Act in 1964. Well, and during that period in the 1960s, 1970s, which is some people consider to be a real golden age for the environmental movement, there was kind of a layering of protections onto land, something that, that continues to today. And that's really significant. I mean, in some ways, it seems like enough to say, oh, this is protected in this one way. But it's not enough, <laughs> at least in, in many cases. So many of these lands are protected in numerous ways. Well, that, the layering is actually a very good way to put it because that's exactly what it's done. Congress is adding layers of protection by these various laws. And, and a very important feature of that 
is that it has blurred the distinctions among the agencies. So it used to be people said, oh, yeah, the Forest Service, National Forest Logging, uh, you know, Park Service, that's recreation. Well, today, um, all four agencies manage tens of millions of acres in the wilderness system. They manage most of their lands for recreation. There is relatively little logging in the national forest system. You know, so the, the, these four agencies all pretty much manage most of their lands for the same purposes overall. And that's a result of this congressional layering. There have been uh, some very... I guess, colorful people involved in the history of public lands over the years. Uh, James Watt in the 80s is someone who is demonized by a lot of people for uh, a lot of the different things that he did. Um, I, I want to talk about briefly about grazing and, and arguments over grazing, wrangling over grazing rights during, especially during that period, because it got really heated. Tell me a little bit about grazing and its role on our public lands. Well, livestock grazing is actually the single largest uh, sort of commodity use of, of federal lands. It, it's, uh, there are about 250 million acres of federal lands that are grazed by domestic livestock, Forest Service and, and Bureau of Land Management in particular. Um, and it has, uh, it has remained a contentious use in some places. Uh, it's, a, a, in my view, a totally appropriate use in some places, particularly well-watered places. But it also takes place a lot on the so-called hot deserts in the Intermountain West, the Southwest, where it's really, frankly, can be fairly abusive in riparian areas, which are heavily, uh, you know, important wildlife habitat and the like. So there are a lot of conflicts in these riparian areas, particularly in the in the drier areas. And that's an, that's an ongoing conflict, has deep cultural roots because livestock grazing has deep cultural roots. Uh, and it's a but the grazing industry is changing, and one of my favorite examples is there was a big ranch in, in west of Yellowstone that changed hands not long ago that had federal permits to graze 300,000 acres. Uh, the seller was the Koch brothers. The buyer was Rupert Murdoch. Uh, and, and so the, <laughs> the public land grazier is changing to some extent. There are many more so-called amenity ranchers, people who are buying these permits in these ranches simply for a lifestyle and not really to, to make money. Uh, so it's a, but it's an ongoing struggle in many parts of the, of the West in particular. You recently wrote an editorial about um, the fact that Utah wants to disable the antiquities law, a law that has led to the creation of four of its incredible national parks. It's also a law that allowed President Barack Obama to set aside the land it bears ears. And then, of course, this became a bone of contention. This became something that um, President Donald Trump tried to undo, and it's become a, a real point of conflict. And then President Biden redid it. <laughs> so this is, uh, tell me what's going on in, in this particular conflict? Well, uh, it's interesting. The, the arc of protection overall has been very much in fa more and more protection for more and more land. What Donald Trump did in 2017 was very much against that uh, because it was the first significant shrinking of a public land area uh, by either the president or Congress in a very long time. He cut about 
two-thirds of the three million acre protected area out of the took them out of national monument status, uh, basically to placate some local interests in in Utah. Um, and it was very controversial. The, the, the Bears Ears Monument, which was one of the two that he downsized, had been what was particularly significant because it was um, the, the largest protected area that had ever been sort of initiated and instigated by Native American tribes who had come together to protect a part of their ancestral homeland and persuade President Obama to set aside this area. Uh, to protect their cultural uh, uh, values. Uh, Trump came along and downsized it, um, and uh, President Biden uh, reinstated it, basically, in his first year in office. The state of Utah is now suing, uh, you know, challenging what Biden did, and uh, we'll see what happens. But I'm pretty confident, frankly, that uh, this was kind of a hiccup. I think what Trump, I think history will show that what Trump did was kind of a hiccup, and it didn't really dislodge the, the trend. And I think I hope Bears Ears and the other monument is safe. We talked earlier about one of the ugliest parts of U.S. history, which is the way that indigenous people, Indians, were treated in the United States and and uh, obviously still face many forms of discrimination. There has been a really exciting moment in recent years, and that was when President Biden uh, appointed Deb Holland to become the Secretary of the Interior. So she is the first... Indian, the first indigenous person to be the Secretary of the Interior, that that's far more than just a symbolic gesture. Tell me what you feel it means. Well, it's very, very significant symbolically and practically, frankly, because she comes in at a time. She's the first basically Native American cabinet member of any kind in American history. And uh, uh, and she has come in and obviously is playing a significant role in making the management of these public lands more uh, sensitive to uh, Native American interests. And Biden has gone on. He just created, a, established a national monument, large national monument, uh, a, a few weeks ago in southern Nevada, half a million acres, I think it was, that was a, a sacred place to the local Native American tribes. And that was a big motivation for uh, the protection of that area. So we're seeing that the effects of, of her, the, her influence and uh, being felt on public land management in a very positive way. We have just a few minutes left, and I, I want to talk about challenges to public lands because there are many challenges to public lands, uh, even though this is something that the majority of Americans do agree on. The, more, uh, the majority of Americans feel a great deal of pride, especially in our national park system. That pride, that love for the national park system actually creates one of those challenges. Uh, there's a concern of us loving these these parks to their detriment. Tell me about that. Well, it's, uh, you know, it, it's sort of a, a good and bad story. I mean, we want people to go to these lands. We want people to experience, you know, their inspirational qualities and to have these life-changing experiences that many people have when they, when they spend time on the public land. So we don't want to discourage their visitation. At the same time, it is certainly possible that you can love these lands to death and the long lines to get into the parks and the, you know, the trashing of certain areas that are so heavily visited. So management is a big problem. And how do you, how do you control that in a, in a way that doesn't ruin the very qualities that brings people there? Uh, for these experiences. Now, part of that is a, a resource problem. You need to have more investment in, in infrastructure in the right places and managers and uh, that sort of thing. And there's good news here because uh, Donald Trump himself signed into law uh, a major uh, uh, 
piece of legislation in 2020, the Great American Outdoors Act, it was called, which passed by overwhelming majority, Republicans and Democrats, which is putting a lot more money into these problems, that is infrastructure and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, so so that's, that's a good side to this. Uh, and I think we're recognizing that the problem. But if you look at the statistics, I mean, the visitation to the Grand Canyon, for example, you know, tripled uh, between, I think, 2000 and 2020. You know? Right. So, and, and, and the pandemic just reminded all of us how much we love right. going outdoors and right. love our public lands and, and how much safer it felt to be outside than to be anywhere else. Right. Um, so so that, that feels like... In, in some ways, I mean, it feels like we're at a moment where people love our public parks more than ever. Does yes, it... I think that's true. I think that's true. Now, another big climate uh, challenge is climate. Right. Uh, and the biodiversity loss, you know, the loss of birds and that sort of thing. Here, public lands also can tell, I think, a, a kind of a positive inspirational story. Because when you think about what we did with the public lands beginning in the 1890s, it was our political system deciding that we needed to think about future generations and about what kind of world we are leaving for those people. And the climate challenge is exactly the same problem, right? I mean, the political system has to come together and worldwide and decide we need to care about the future and we need to take steps now to protect things for the future. So the the story of the public lands, as I said, is a is a political success story that we can be inspired by to help deal with the climate problem. You are here in Iowa during uh, your book tour. You have visited the two states with the least amount of public <laughs> lands. The other one is Connecticut. And, and yes, Iowa, when you look at a map of public lands, Iowa doesn't, <laughs> doesn't do so hot. And, and actually, that uh, that's not just national public lands. That's state-owned public lands as well. And there are forces in the state of Iowa that just recently tried to pass legislation that is now dead for, for this legislative session to actually make it more difficult to create any public lands, state-owned public lands in the state of Iowa. Being in a state like this, I mean, we all love this national park system and I know that I have camped and hiked in national parks and national forests all over the continent. What are your thoughts? What do you want Iowans to understand about this system, given that we have so little of it here? Well, I think one of the things that's misunderstood about the public land protection movement is that it's creeping socialism. You know, it's the idea the government is gradually taking over everything and stamping out private enterprise. If you go to a place like Moab, Utah, uh, which is surrounded by, you know, really beautiful public lands that are heavily visited, there are huge opportunities for private enterprise there. I mean, the, the tourism industry and the, and the support that is required to handle all that visitation is a, is a big boon for the economy in these places. All over the West, uh, you are, are seeing this. So it's not socialism. There is actually much positive to be uh, gained out of it economically in terms of private enterprise jobs and that sort of thing. So that's, that's an important message. And then I just think the idea that, that open space inspires people uh, is something that's very profound, deep in the human you know, psyche. Uh, and so uh, usually open space is best preserved when it's in public ownership. Now, there are various different ways to do that, different agencies and different kinds of techniques and conservation easements and all, all kinds of stuff like that. But I think the idea of protecting open space through some form of government uh, uh, 
monitoring or supervision is is really uh, important, and that's the fundamental public land story. Well, and so many of these national parks that we we think about are so spectacular. But just reading this history and thinking about our history in Iowa, although we don't have the mountains and we don't have the ocean and we don't necessarily have those spectacular landmarks, there's so much that, that has been special about and that is special about our native ecology in Iowa and so many incredible stories of species that nearly disappeared and then have come back from the brink. So many really wonderful, beautiful inspiring things to explore in our state. And that this just underlined how powerful that is and that connection here and everywhere. Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, I think, it's a, I think it's a great story. I think it's inspirational. And that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> John Leshy, thank you so much for talking with me today and for this tome <laughs> that, that taught me so much about our public lands. John Leshy is an emeritus professor of the University of California College of Law, San Francisco. He was a solicitor for the U.S. Department of Interior from 1993 through 2001. His book is Our Common Ground, A History of America's Public Lands. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Samantha McIntosh, Danny Gear, and Caitlin Troutman. You can subscribe to the Talk of Iowa podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, subscribe to Unsettled from Iowa Public Radio. The new season features conversations about different aspects of womanhood and what it means to be a woman today. More information at IPR.org slash womanhood. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa.